Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan, and we have a very special guest, probably the guest we've had come back more times than anybody else. This is Abigail Tracy. She is the political reporter extraordinaire for The Hive, Vanity Fair. Abby, welcome back. We're so happy to have you. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're here today, and we think that, Abby, you're the ideal person for this, to bring a giant paddle and spank Democrats. (laughs) Like, what's wrong with them? What is their problem? There's a few. (laughs) There's a list, (laughs) a running list of things. Yeah, it's getting longer, it seems like. You know, when Ukraine is not uh, the top of the list of things we're talking about, it's all about inflation, gas prices. Uh, I looked at some investments I have that are just pegged to the stock index, which I occasionally will look at. And then, you know, you either have a good feeling or a bad feeling. And it was a bad feeling when I looked at it the other day. (laughs) Pretty masochistic of you. It's pretty masochistic. You're not supposed to look. Yeah, you look when it's good, not when it's bad. (laughs) But, you know, that's where the country's at. It's sort of like a broad index for understanding people's emotional feelings about the world. And, uh, you know, Trump, the specter of Trump and all of these primaries, and that's ugly. There's a midterm coming up. And the Democrats, I'm waiting, waiting for something to happen, for them to say something energizing, let's say. And it just doesn't seem to happen. Emily, (laughs) are you as worried as I am? Yeah. And I will say just listening to you talk makes me worried because I feel like, you have been co-opted by the democratic brain. And I'll tell you why. I want everybody's take on this. So so let me just get this out. You started off by saying, when we're not talking about Ukraine, we're talking about all these other things. And I would argue that most of this country is not talking about Ukraine. And I think most of the people on the coasts and on Twitter and in newsrooms are thinking about Ukraine as we should. But I think most people across the country are not. I also think that the vast, vast majority of this country is not invested in any way in the stock market. And psychologically, people can point to the stock market being down as a way to impact sentiment. But the large, large, vast majority of this country has not a dollar or a pension fund or any kind of investment in the stock market. Well, that yeah, that may be true. But um, that's, you know, that's the thing. Along with the sort of economic indicators, there's just the gas station indicator. Right. And then there's the grocery store indicators. And those are 
roughly tracking with this uh, negative economic view that I'm describing. That is, well, the the stock market is a reaction to those negative economic forces, right? So I think, I think, I hate to bring this up, but I still follow Don Jr. on Instagram because he was a big part of the last stretch of my professional life. And I find it maddening and I find it useful at the same time because it is a real window into how that faction of the world speaks and how they message and how they think. Uh, I saw him post on Wednesday something about the baby formula shortage and why we're still sending all this money to Ukraine. And that's the messaging right now. It's you can't buy formula for your infant in this country, but we can send billions of dollars to Ukraine. When are we going to start focusing on what's happening to home? And whether or not you agree with that, whether or not you find holes in that argument, that is what they're arguing. And I would imagine for a large portion of this country, if you see something like that, you're like, well, yeah, I can't afford to fill up my car with gas. I can't go to the the Home Depot and get a dishwasher for my kitchen for the next six months. I would imagine then that's an effective argument for them. And that's why people like Don Jr. and the Republican Party and, and those people who are aligned with him are winning. Abby, what do you think of that argument? What is hitting and why are Democrats so unable to message the way that Don Jr., who is not the sharpest tool, able to message? Well, I think base level, you always have this cyclical scenario wherein, you know, the party in power is likely to lose power in Congress and in the White House, just that historical trend that we've seen. So you're already, Democrats are already sort of starting from behind the pack a little bit in that regard, just because just traditional knowledge or political thinking says like they're going to lose either the House or the Senate just based upon historical trends. So they're already kind of behind the ball on that one. But I think the reality is, is they don't have a message right now. So they aren't fighting back. I think they're one, when we look back over the past, like four years, so much of what was motivating the democratic base was fear. It was fear-based. It was, it was, you know, we can't have Donald Trump elected again. We can't have X, Y, Z happen again. And that was the motivation. They didn't have any sort of, messaging that pulled people out in a way that wasn't fear-based. And I think you you see that in where we are right now. You know, Joe and I talked about the, the idea that really the last thing you saw the message around or that they're still kind of messaging around is COVID support and build back better. And these things where it feels so far in the past that there's just no longer any stickiness or traction to those messages and they haven't come up with anything new and they certainly haven't come up with anything to combat Republican talking points, which I do think to your point and to what John Jr. was saying, they do have some of that stickiness right now. And I think there's a broader issue within the Democratic Party about, okay, what are our priorities and how do we message around those? And you have different factions within the party. You have different goals within the party. But nobody's nobody's walking in a straight line, basically. And that's a real, a real problem for them. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see 
Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> And putting aside the historical trends that they're going to be wiped out in the midterms just as a, you know, a review of their power, the Republicans are, they have such an incredible hand over the Democrats right now because of the economy, which is like the big one, right? That's easy for them, right? That message from Don Jr., that's just such a layup, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, He's not concerned with what's going on in our country, and we're the, obviously we're this America first party, so we're concerned about what's happening here at home. You don't care about that. You care about what's happening in front of you. And then on the other hand, they're banging on the culture war stuff, the groomer and the crazy kind of attacks on trans people and gays, and now and now we have Roe v. Wade, right? We're going to get into that in a minute. But and in both those fronts, which are the two fronts, right? the economy and the culture war stuff. Uh, the Democrats just don't seem to have any, even even much of a counterpunch, right? I mean, we this was uh, something we've everybody talked about was this uh, Senator Mallory McMorrow from Michigan who was being attacked herself for potentially grooming and sexualizing kindergartners. It was one of these wild outlandish attacks on her. And then she came back with a video that got a lot of traction. You know, I'm a suburban Christian mom, this is a lie, we're going to call out lies, we're not going to let hate win, was was the quote. And that was an interesting video because it attempted to do a couple of things, which was position Democrats as right in the center. We're the normal ones and they're the crazy. Whereas the Republicans are trying to say, we're the normal and they're the crazy, right? And the crazy is all the, you know, your kid coming home and wanting to be a he or a she when they're not a he or a she or whatever. Whatever their fear of diversity, fear of pluralism. And so that center is what we're ostensibly fighting for, one thinks. I mean, that's the current kind of debate in the Democratic Party is like, are we fighting for the center or are we going to posit our progressive left ideals as uh, we're leading the people rather than the people leading us, right? And that's a tricky balancing act that Democrats have not figured out. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I do think when we're looking at that, obviously, to your point, it's the economy stupid or, or whatever that mm -hmm. classic line is. You know, that's always been there. You look at Carter, you look at H.W. Bush and sort of the reasons and why they were one-term president. So much of it is tied back to the economic situations that they were grappling with upon their reelection. But back to this culture war issue and what you're seeing, I, I think there's just, I think in general, it is really hard to argue with incredibly outlandish things. <laughs> like, I think there's just like a natural human instinct where you're like, what? These people are crazy. Nobody would believe this to push back on it or to acknowledge it at all would be to give it credence to some degree. But I think for the Democrats, they're really missing a broader trend and a broader problem for them. You know, you hear these and you're like, nobody's going to believe it. But 
what I think the Democratic Party is missing and kind of has been missing for a long time, especially when we look back at Trump's election, the Trump years and all that, and sort of when so many of these you know, these like pedophile conspiracy theories and everything really first started to take hold. I think they're missing the saliency of these outlandish claims, given the environment we're in, in terms of the bubbles. People are just kind of siloed in their news sources, their sources of information. And within those silos of information, these things might make sense. (laughs) Like it might not seem outlandish given other things that they're hearing and the other things that they're consuming. And so the reality is, is I just think the Democratic Party for years still has not figured out that it is really important to push back against these crazy you know, claims and conspiracy theories, but they have yet to really adopt that approach and really figure out exactly how to do it. I do think her video was strong in the fact that she did call it out. It's different to be dismissive of something and to say, no, this is not true. You know, I think I think sometimes Democrats will just say like, oh, whatever. Like, why are we even talking about that? Why are we talking about what Marjorie Taylor Greene said? And the reality is, is we should be talking about what Marjorie Taylor Greene said because this whole other swath of people are talking about what Marjorie Taylor Greene said. And if there's no response to it or no acknowledgement of it, all there really is is a vacuum. And these things just kind of keep getting bigger. Can I ask you a question about that? Because I totally agree. I agree that there's a moral imperative to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and to speak into that vacuum and to say that these things are not true. I I understand that there is a moral imperative to do that. But practically speaking, I again agree that there are these silos. And I don't know that there's anything you're going to say to break through that silo, right? And so we're sounding a crazy alarm to people who aren't listening and they have earplugs in and they don't want to hear it. And if you say it, they almost are further entrenched, right? So there's this battle between what is right and what is practical. And the Democrats over the last few years, because so much has been egregiously wrong, have really leaned into this. Like we're going to avenge what's right rather than we're going to come up with our own practical messaging to win. I don't know that there is a right answer about what you should do. And there's probably somewhere in the middle that would satisfy both things. But what I feel like has happened so much is that there's so much attention on, well, this is crazy. This is outlandish. We're going so against the norms. And then they don't fill it with anything to galvanize people. The only thing that I've seen be effective over the last year has been with Roe this last week. And nothing in me is glad that that has happened. It's atrocious. But for the first time, I feel like, is this an issue that could galvanize turnout in November? Is this for the first time our own culture war that we could win? Because it's so overwhelmingly popular to be pro-safe abortion, right? And it feels like most of this country is with that. So for the first time, I feel like, okay, there is a culture war on the Democratic side that we could all unite around. I don't know if people will stay galvanized from now until November about that. And I don't know that this will be enough of an issue that people are going to vote on. But if Democrats were smart, they would work from now until November to make this the issue. And you better believe that Republicans would do that, right? Yeah. Well, and I, I think exactly to your point, you know, you don't necessarily need to respond to every outlandish thing, but you need an alternative, as you were saying. Okay, if this is the culture war they're fighting, or these are the issues that they're putting out there as like their platform, so to speak, what is the alternative? And I think that's what the Democratic Party is missing. And 
back to this idea of how reliant Democrats had been on fear as the root or the core of their messaging. I think we are seeing that now again with Roe. It is scary. It's scary for women everywhere. You know, already they're saying if Roe is overturned, it's something like half of states are going to ban abortion. And then, you know, from there, you're going to get even more draconian legislation around contraceptives, IUDs, etc. And criminalizing, saying homicides, all this stuff. But I think you're absolutely right that Democrats have an opportunity around, around Roe to galvanize. But historically, it's hard to keep that steam up, as you said, like people get tired. And I do think we will have a situation, perhaps, where Roe collides with the economy and sort of, you know, people struggling with that and negative around that as well. So it's just it will be it will be interesting, I think, to see how well they're able to keep people fired up around it. I think the Republicans might help. I think you are one of the best sourced reporters I know, and I will gas you up a little bit and say that you have always had your feet on the ground, your finger on the pulse. And I want to know this week, this month, what is the chatter that you're hearing in these private conversations that most of us aren't privy to? What are people looking at? What are they concerned about in your group chats, in your phone calls? What are they looking toward if when the midterms are are so quickly approaching? Yeah. So, so I think one of the interesting aspects about conversations that I've had, especially around this idea of how do you keep Democrats motivated is a lot will actually come down to what Republicans do. Like how crazy do they get? How far do they go? In a way, when you're looking at Roe right now, again, we talk about people's attention spans and people get tired. And I think people are all very tired right now after the pandemic, after the last couple of years, after, you know, everything the country has been through. But I think one of the interesting things is that Democrats, certainly they don't want to see any of this, like draconian legislation come to fruition or pass. But I also think there is a view that in this moment, if Roe v. Wade is officially overturned, that Republicans can be their own worst enemies and Democrats biggest assets if they do these crazy things like make IUDs illegal in Louisiana or charge women with homicide for using contraceptives, things like that. I think there is a sense among conversations I've had that in a way it'll kind of, in a sense, fall to Republicans to keep the Democratic base motivated by their own actions. So it's like, how overzealous do they get and what impact will that have on the electorate? I think the other thing that I have, you know, that I have spoken with people about is this general, and these are, you know, Democratic staffers, Democratic strategists, operatives, um, a general disappointment in where we are now. Like Republicans and, you know, conservatives have been fighting to overturn Roe for years now. They've been plucking these test cases, putting them all over the country in the hopes that this would happen. And I think there is a sense of disappointment among Democrats that I've spoken with that there wasn't like a similar proactive response, especially at the state legislature level. You know, the issue with Roe v. Wade is it's it's federal and now it's going to fall to the states. And Republicans have been, you know, working for so, so many years to make sure that those state legislatures are red. And, you know, working at that lower local state level 
to prepare for this moment. And I think there is a disappointment among many Democrats that I've spoken with that there wasn't necessarily the same focus. You know, there's, I think Democrats in general are, you know, it seems are so much more focused federally, whereas Republicans in the Republican Party are looking at the various levels of government with with greater focus. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to go back to a couple of things you've just said, Abby. Uh, right at the top, you were saying that, you know, Republicans make crazy attacks about groomers or whatever you think. And the response from Democrats is, that's crazy. How dare you? So on and so forth. But they don't go and decode what these fears are really about and then yeah. come up with another way of talking to those people about those fears. Mm-hmm. A couple of episodes ago, I talked to Charlie Crist, who's running, you know, trying to run against uh, DeSantis. And of course, DeSantis did this don't say gay bill, which is hugely popular in Florida. I mean, this thing, which seems totally nuts, is obviously appealing to some fear, some anxiety there. And Democrats don't really have a message for it, right? And there's a kind of a tone deafness to the Democrats that is precedes their lack of message. They're not hearing what it is that's the conversation that's going on there and then coming up with an actual message to address it. In a way, that's what I worry about even with the Roe thing, is even within opposition to overturning it and taking away the right to abortion, will the Democrats even be able to talk about it in a way that uh, wins them? Yes, you want to fire up your base, but you can't win elections just with the base. And I I was just reading an article, it was in The Atlantic, and it was about the kind of the – you guys have heard this expression – it was coined by Bill Clinton in the early 90s. Safe, legal, and rare was the way that he put it because he'd always been in this weird middle ground. It's a perfect triangulating comment, right? But it assuaged that big, broad middle who support abortion, even if they have reservations about it. Safe, legal, and rare. And it was this kind of beautiful you know, triangle, right? In a Clintonian triangle. But what it achieved is kind of what the Democrats have to do to win the center and the base. They already have a base that's fired up about it. There's no, they're not going to lose that, right? The young female progressives and all progressives are going to be for it. But then there's this more ambivalent middle that you can get. They want it to be legal, but they are uncomfortable with it or it makes them feel cringy about it, right? Because it's a sensitive topic. Yeah. The individuals who will say, I'll never get an abortion, but I'm pro-choice. Like that kind exactly. of, that group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and there's people that are against abortion, just like you say, on principle, but aren't going to go so far as to say it should be illegal for other people to make that decision because they have a more libertarian view or whatever. So, I mean, yes, Roe v. Wade is such an opportunity for Democrats to come out and stand for something, right? But will they get the messaging right again? Yeah, <laughs> and I think I think when you're looking at that, that's been 
kind of an ongoing problem with the Democratic Party over, you know, for a long time, back to this sort of stereotype of like patronizing elitists, right? Like if if there is some traction around something that to us might seem crazy and conspiratorial, to say, oh, that's absolutely crazy, that's stupid, anybody who believes that is stupid, like that doesn't do you any good. That doesn't garner you any favors or support with those individuals. And it's certainly not going to necessarily change their mind, if anything, further turn them against you. And I think that's one of the things that Democrats need to be careful with, especially when we're looking at some of these issues, sort of this idea of, you know, making these assumptions without really recognizing, as you say, what is motivating people's beliefs in these things, in these issues, in these topics, like what really is going on, as you as you put it so delicately, like what are the fears that these things are kind of wrapped up around? Um, and I think that's going to be critical for Democrats moving forward to not be dismissive of voters who might be susceptible to believing some of these things. But back to Emily's point, you have to have an alternative. You can't just say that's crazy and not offer anything. You have to tell them what it is, what it looks like. And back to the Clinton line, that's saying like, hey, if this happens with Roe v. Wade, this is what it should look like or something along those lines, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's just long been kind of a struggle for the Democratic Party. Well, look at this uh, national abortion ban that they just failed to get through Congress. Schumer put it forward and it was an absolutist approach. And they lost Manchin. I'm not saying Manchin, you know, Joe Manchin's a problem. He's uh, a thorn in the side of the whole party, yes. But he represents exactly, you know, the kind of inconvenient centrist, you know, center to center right voters that you need to win these elections, right? So how, what could they have done to brought him into the fold or even bring Susan Collins or or the gal from Alaska over. And, you know, those guys didn't want to be caught flat-footed and made to look bad because that's what basically with that bill, they knew they were going to lose, right? So it was basically to kind of set a line in the, uh, put a line in the sand and say, if you're not with us, you're against us, right? But they just decided to do their own bill, right, to kind of counteract that politically, right, to make a different bill that actually had a more compromised version, right? Neither of which will get anywhere, but... There's a column out right now circulating around this conversation right now by this guy, um, Rai Texiera, I think is how you pronounce his name. And he is cataloging the failures of the Democrats on, you know, crime, immigration, voting rights, infrastructure. And I just want to read this quote from it because it, it gets to what we're talking about. He said, the thread that runs through all these failures is the Democratic left's, and he's a Democrat, by the way, is the Democratic left's adamant refusal to base its political approach on the actually existing opinions and values of actually existing American voters. And, you know, I don't agree with this guy on everything he says, but there is something to that, that they have, and people have been making this critique since Obama, by the way, <laughs> that he lost he didn't talk to the working class and he lost them. The people that voted for him back in 2008 and 2012, they just didn't manage their communication with the middle, with the unions, with the working class voters that they had. And along came Trump and took them all, right? So there's got to be something. And, you know, we thought Joe Biden, 
being the kind of uh, working class dude he is from Scranton would somehow have that touch. But he and I want to talk about Joe Biden for just a second. And I want you guys to comment on this. But where is he? You know, when I see him, he just seems far away. He's a kind of like shows up here and there, but he just seems remote to the American people. He does not seem like the leader of the party. His polling's in the toilet because people don't feel like they know where we're going. And maybe he doesn't have the stuff to sell, but there's got to be something, right? He passed this giant Build Back Better bill and nobody talks about it and it has no traction in the polling. And so you question the message from the Democratic Party. Might it start at the top? (laughs) And if so, why isn't it? Right? So I respect Joe Biden's leadership on the Ukraine thing. I think it's been fabulous, and I think that's his strength. It's always ha- He's always been a foreign policy guy, but I don't know if about you guys, but I feel like I'm waiting for him to come on primetime television and be a presence. It's, it's actually so funny that you should say that. So last night I was at a, a book party, and I was talking to a couple other political reporters, and this, this kind of came up in our conversation. So we were staying there and, you know, we were all kind of chatting and looking around at one another. And we all were like, are you just bored? (laughs) And they were like, yeah, I'm so bored. And one of the other, one of the reporters in the circle, he said, look, it is hard to be as boring as Joe Biden is. He's like, that is a hard thing to do. And it kind of stuck with me. And, you know, I don't know if boring's fair, but I think there is this kind of lack of, look, I think people after, after Trump, it's nice to have a little, a little calm and a little bit of boring, you know, never hurt anyone, but it is just so interesting insofar as, yeah, he hasn't really sold what they're doing. And, and I think it's actually, whether it's him or whether it's other members of the cabinet, it is a disservice to what the administration is actually accomplishing. Because if you run down a list of what they actually have done, there have been some really impressive pieces of legislation that they've passed, things that they have done. Obviously, there are a lot of areas of disappointment and things where people would have liked to see more. I think immigration is a huge one when we look at the holdover from the Trump administration in that space. But you think back to, you look over what they've achieved over these last couple of months, over this last year, there was really only one moment when I thought anything really caught traction. And that was the passage of the infrastructure bill. And that was because Pete Buttigieg was like putting on a show and making the rounds and people saw traction and he got such traction to the point that immediately there was conversation about, you know, is he going to be Biden's running mate? Is he going to run for president? And it, Somebody pitching a huge, a huge success of an administration, the fact that it immediately went to, is this guy going to run for president or take over as VP, tells you something about the lack of messaging around the administration's wins, aside from that, if that makes sense. Like, just the immediacy, immediacy at which that, that chatter began, I think is pretty telling around, you know, their failure to pump up or highlight some of their achievements. Well, are you are you getting a sense from these conversations about why this is? It makes no sense to me. It, it feels like the conversation that that I am starting to have with both other reporters and uh, just other people. I had it with our editor earlier this week. What 
is happening? Is it a fear of the media? Is it a fear of letting people in? Just so being afraid of getting any kind of pushback that they want to do nothing? What What is it? Are they so busy that they just want to disappear? Can they not figure out a message? I could think of a million things, but but you know better than I do. Honestly, I, I do think there is this fear. And I think there's this risk aversion that's plaguing the entire administration. I think there's this thing like, you know, don't rock the boat. No news is good news almost. But the reality is, is the news is going to be there no matter what. And if you don't, if you don't fill the vacuum, the vacuum's going to get also, filled no matter what. I hate what. to break it to you. The boat is rocked. Like, yeah. it is, it is rocked. Yeah, and we are, <laughs> there's a hole in we are, it. <laughs> we are about to live in a hell again. If we don't, I would take, I would take a rocky boat than a trip to hell any yeah. day of the week. And I feel like because there is this fear about like, just shut up and say nothing that I think, I actually think this is something that we don't talk about enough, but I think in general, a lot of people in power have been advised by communication experts over the last two years to just shut up, never tweet, uh, don't don't apologize, don't comment on anything, like just shut your mouth and and this too shall pass. And I think I understand the reason for that. I also understand the reason why that's completely wrong. But I think what is going to happen is if you're following that sort of ethos, and I don't know for sure that they're following that kind of ethos, but if, if that's what they're following, we are in for a disaster. And and we spent so much time on this podcast talking about, well, you have to you have to call something out if it's not. We just we just spent minutes and minutes and minutes talking about that. And I feel like no one is speaking to anything right now because they're so scared to speak up and what's going to end up happening is so much worse than what would happen if people just raised their voices right now. Well, I think, honestly, I, I think it predates even Biden officially being sworn in. I think this goes back to the Democratic primary. You know, after Trump, there was this risk aversion that I think plagued the whole party. You know, they were like, it can't be someone too progressive. It can't be somebody out there. Like we need Joe Biden. He can be the one to bring back the working class. And then throughout the campaign, I think Biden stuck to that kind of approach. You know, it was sort of ride the wave. People will fall off, like keep doing what you're doing, stay the course. And then he won. But I do think there was so much conversation around, well, it can't be a woman we saw what happened with Hillary. It can't be somebody too progressive because we need white working class voters. And it just was this total risk aversion to it. And I mean, granted, it, it worked out. You know, Joe Biden did win. It ended up being a winning formula for the party. But that said, it's like he wanted him to come in and kind of be this transformative power that kind of reset the dials on everything. And some of that has happened, but it's happened quietly. And I think it's a residual approach that you can date back to the campaign. And I just don't think it's effective. The other thing is you look at who's in the administration and, you know, some of the folks that are around Biden and Harris, they're well-seasoned veterans, you know, in comms who have been around a long time. But you're fooling yourself if you think that the same tactics that worked previously in years past in a pre-Trump world can work now. Like, I just think there is, you have to adapt and you have to evolve with the times. And I just don't know if that's happening in terms of the messaging of this administration.
we've talked about this on this podcast before, too, which is that one of the things that made help Joe Biden win was that, he, like you said, he he laid back. Right. He kind of rope doped and let Trump swing himself out. And he ended up winning because people wanted some calm. They wanted that after all they'd been through. And that seemed like a great idea when you're campaigning. But then when you're on top, when you are in power, and this is the thing that my critique of the Democrats is when they get power, I'm like, okay, now's your chance. Use it. Be muscular about it. This is your moment. It's not going to last. There's going to be a midterm and you're going to lose it, you know. And then they, you know, he got caught between trying to fulfill the FDR dreams of the of the progressive left and the Joe Mansions of the world. And I get that he was caught in between, but you got him. He never brought him to the table and did the compromising that you want him to do. That be the Lyndon Johnson kind of character and make it happen, right? And now, you know, what I want to see is like let's go back to when there was a slate of Democratic candidates for president. Do you remember? And we had that full spectrum right there in front of us that represented all the little interests of the Democratic Party from the far left Bernie's to the center uh, Joe Biden. They should be on a freaking roadshow right now trying to sell what they did. You know, they need to be out in the middle of the country, like connecting with people in a real way. What happened to Joe Biden in his Corvette? And he said, I'm going to turn this into an electric car. Right. We're going to have electric versions of this and I'm going to go down the highway. Well, he should be in that electric car driving across this country and avoiding the gas stations where it's five dollars a gallon. But, you know, he's got to figure out a way to make himself be a real person in the world and connecting with what's happening in, in, in our towns around here. I mean, we talked about the stock market at the top. I just want to say that there's a guy that um, mows my yard. Right. He is a just a classic uh, salt of the earth guy that his, uh, works at UPS. And then he also mows lawns on the side and he's just a complete, uh, workaholic kind of guy, but he has a 401k and he pays a lot of attention to it. Right. And mm. that's what he bases all of his voting on. You know, he's not partisan, but there's only one party that's like constantly talking to him about what he cares about. Right. I'm not saying what he cares about is what he should be caring about. I like to care about everybody in across. I have a more maybe global view of the world. He's got a very hyper local view of the world. It's his self-interest. Most right? people do. And the, yeah, well, Democrats don't talk to the people. They exactly. expect everybody to have this granted very positive vision of the world in which we can have diversity and everybody can benefit and that there are certain people who haven't benefited historically and that we should bring them up, which, by the way, is a classic Christian uh, thing to do. But then there's the reality on the ground. And the reality on the ground is just not what the Democrats are talking about. And that's allowed the GOP to just bang on the dumbest messages possible. And But they have a message. And it's just like having one is better than it doesn't matter what it is. They have one, right? The Democrats just don't even have one. Right. I mean, there is a way, and I'm no messaging expert, but there's got to be a way where you can make people care about children getting bombed in Ukraine while also saying, hey, but don't worry, we didn't forget about your 401k. Like, it's not yeah. impossible. And I think when we're looking at sort of this idea or this notion of calm, there's calm and then there's complacency. And I think the worry is that that is kind of taking over the approach, if that makes sense. And also when we're looking at legislation, when we're looking at, for instance, the 
the Roe v. Wade bill that failed, there's also this idea of like, okay, is perfect going to be the enemy of good? Because yes, since that vote failed, Democrats are out there there like Republicans don't care about women's reproductive rights. Like this is all on them. This is terrible. They're evil, all this stuff. But the bill had some extra stuff in it, like around, you know, stripping certain mandates in states around like waiting periods and doctor's appointments and, and things of that nature. But you do wonder if they had simplified it, you know, stuck closer to the actual text of Roe v. Wade, you know, didn't try to add on these extra things, but codified it. There now I'm thinking about, you know, those women in Utah who would still have access to abortions. And maybe, maybe it's not perfect. Maybe the legislation isn't what, isn't the end all be all and what everybody hopes, but hopefully it could have hit a point where women weren't being um, penalized in some of these states that if it is overturned, you know, abortion is going to be illegal there. And so you just kind of wonder at what point does perfect become the enemy of good, especially when we look at the dynamics of Congress right now in the Senate and in the House. Like the numbers are tough. And you wonder sometimes if the idea of messaging just to message versus legislating is getting in the way. If that makes it, sense. It does make sense. And Abby, this is why we love having you here because I feel like you have just struck <laughs> the perfect balance of practical and political and reasonable and right. And it's really a tough balance. And if I was Democrats, I'd hire you. I know you have a better higher calling than this, but <laughs> but you really you really yes. have a way of getting to the heart <laughs> of this. And as I said earlier, you're one of the best source people in town. So we are so grateful for having you here. It's always such a treat. As this continues to unfold, we will have you back and keep talking about this. But I feel like we have a, a clear-eyed look at what is happening in the Democratic Party and what's ahead if we don't start actually talking to people about the things that matter. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I Thank you guys so much. I love chatting with you. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.